Hi. Hi. <laughs> Recording in progress. So, uh, yeah, welcome back to the Weirdest Thing podcast. We're back. Like uh, you knew we would be. I am Scotty Milder, one of your hosts. Yep. My name is Amelia Ampuero. I am one of your other hosts. Yeah. And we're just as awkward as always. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Look, in case anybody was hoping that our awkwardness has diminished over any one of our many breaks. It's, it's not. Hasn't. We're here to yeah. tell you that it hasn't. And it probably won't uh, love us for who we are. Yeah. (laughs) Not who you imagine us to be. Right. We're not like, we're not, this isn't this American life here. We're not doing that. (laughs) (laughs) Look, if you want hosts that you like. uh... (laughs) Or respect. Might need to look elsewhere, people. <laughs> um, so no lie, no lie. I am coming. I'm a bit, I'm a bit frazzled. Uh-huh. Um, so if my energy is a little frenetic, that's why. Also, it is currently, I'm gonna check, I'm gonna do a little temperature check for Albuquerque right now. It is currently a balmy, it's 87 degrees, but definitely feels hotter than that, right? Yeah. Like way hotter than that. And I think it's because we have relative humidity right now for Albuquerque. We're at 26% humidity, which Which, for us is like, we might as well be New Orleans. For all our fans in Florida, they're like, oh, go fuck yourself. Right. right. (laughs) We're like, it's warm. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So all of us little desert babies are are struggling a little bit with the humidity uh, that is in the air, but that's okay. We're here. We're ready to do a show for you guys. We're super excited. Scotty, before we get started, I want to ask if you've watched anything interesting lately on TV. Yeah, I was going to say before before we even get into our stories, I just need to get off my chest like yeah. how fucking traumatized I was by your recent uh recommendation. If you guys have not seen Dr. Death on Peacock, I mean, if the idea that that show traumatized the hardcore horror guy, if you can mm-hmm. consider that a recommendation, it is absolutely a recommendation. I will say that I watched it as well. I talked to Scotty about it and was like, "Do you know about this Dr. Death show?" and um he sort of watched it on my recommendation. It is troubling. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I did not have the long lasting trauma that Scotty did watching (laughs) it. Well, and I think, I mean, so just if you guys haven't heard of it, just like a quick, we we won't go into the whole thing, but it's, it's based on a true story. It's about Mm -hmm. a a doctor that, what was his fucking name? Christopher Dunch. Christopher Dunch. Um, he was a doctor down in Texas, um, Dallas area who basically was like the Ted Bundy of doctors. Well, or maybe even more like the Dahmer of doctors. Cause he was just like, fucking mutilating people and like the the big open question is was he just incompetent or was he a sociopath who's doing it on purpose and i think it's still a big open question yeah Um, but yeah it was i think because i have not to be like all old man complaining but like i have like (laughs) 
<laughs> not again. I have some like pretty like not super serious, but like chronic back problems. Mm-hmm. Like I have two bad discs in my back and like, you know, the surgery discussion has been had with various doctors over the years. And this guy was a neurosurgeon and his job was to do spinal surgeries and yep. disc removal surgeries. And yep. And like just the shit he did to his patients. Like, so like me watching it with that in mind that like, I may have to go in for this exact surgery someday. Right. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Rough. Yeah. It's kind of a thing where like at best it's gross negligence at best. best. Like that is literally the most credit that you can give this guy is that he had no business being a medical professional, let alone a neurosurgeon. Um, In case you're wondering, it is in fact based on a podcast by the same name, Dr. Death. That's a Wondery podcast. Mm -hmm. Uh, Wondery, if you'd like to pick us up and have us on your network (laughs) (laughs) or sponsor us for giving you free advertising, uh, we're cool with that. But it's very good. There are two seasons of it. Both of them are disturbing and also I want to say that there are there's a podcast and a show about this because it is the exception, not the rule. Yeah. Um, so you know, don't don't let this become uh, a reason for you to not trust yeah, medical don't blame, doctors and science and don't stuff blame like that. us if you become anti-vaxxers because of this. Look. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> we're not that's, taking that responsibility yeah that's not gonna fly with anybody uh yeah, with anybody no. within the weirdest thing podcast <laughs> empire we will not <laughs> right <laughs> we will not take credit for your anti-vax yeah but positions. it is it's it's incredibly disturbing not only yeah. with the guy like got away with and like i think i fall on the side of psychopath like i think whether he was doing it intentionally or not, it's like clear he didn't give a fuck like, I think that, about doing it right. Right. And, I mean, and he named uh, what, like just... 33 out of 38 patients. And like literally people yeah. go in for like a minor yeah. like disc operation and would end up quadriplegics. Right. So. Surgeries that should have taken 20 minutes. Uh, and would end up dead or paralyzed. So um, really, really good time show. So check that out if you need a little feel good (laughs) something. Actually, I like for as traumatizing as I found it, I also found it really entertaining. And I think like it's really well written and just like from a storytelling perspective, like it's it's done in this kind of non-linear way, which could at times be confusing, but I thought mostly really worked. And I thought, the performances were like, I mean, among the best that I've seen in a TV show in a long time. Yeah, everybody, everybody across the board is is really yeah. great on, in and it. Like just just uh, so you know, it, it does star Joshua Jackson of Dawson's Creek fame. Yeah, if we have any, if if we have any Doss heads. Yeah, and he's fucking fantastic. Not at all a thing. <laughs> it's not a thing. <laughs> no, he's he's one of those actors. I think you had made the joke that like we forget about the Dawson's Creek actors because apparently like nobody but Michelle Williams is allowed to be good from that show. Yeah. But I always forget Joshua Jackson, everything I've seen him in, he's always been very good. He's, and he's really good in this. Yeah, he's just he's been quietly good for his entire career. 
Yeah. A solid, solid actor. Alec Baldwin being Alec Baldwin. Alec Baldwin. Christian yes. Slater being Christian Slater. Being very good I, at being Christian Slater. Yes. I deeply yeah. enjoy Christian Slater in this. Um, yeah. And like I told Scotty, a woman that I just did a production of a friend's play, my friend Georgina, her play Ash Tree. We just did a virtual production of it via Hartford Stage in Connecticut. And the woman who played my mother makes an appearance, makes several appearances oh, nice. uh, in this show. So, you know, go support working actors and check it yeah, out. I feel terrible, but I'm forgetting her name. The woman who plays the young district attorney who I'd never seen before. She's also very good. She, I, she's a three namer. Yeah. It's, I don't remember. We can maybe fact check that later. In the yeah. Show. <laughs> yeah. Uh, she's a three namer, but yeah, she's also excellent and is, you know, has a baby face yeah. uh, and is playing the sort of like young, right. She's like the ADA. Yes, and she's based, again, because it's a true story, based on a real person um, who was, in fact, the youngest ADA, I think, in Texas's history. I think I read that. Oh, right. Um, and I mean, she looks like the actor. She looks like she's in middle school or something. But, like, yeah. she sells it. Like, she sells that kind of baby face, but with, like, this, like, shark legal mind underneath it. Yeah, you know? yeah. So. Anna oh. Sophia Robb is her name. That's right. But That's it looks right. like Anna Sophia is one, like, Marianne. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like one word. I'm still basically right is what I'm telling you right. <laughs> and all of our listeners. Okay. Let's jump into it. Let's do this. Okay. So I'm just going to keep Ken Burnsing the shit out of this podcast with my <laughs> epic series on baseball. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> so this is like I said last week, this is going to be the story of Shoeless Joe Jackson, the gangster Arnold Rothstein and the Black Sox scandal of 1919. Oh. I feel like I'm already heartbroken, but yeah, okay. there's, there's, there's some heartbreaking stuff in here and we'll get to okay. it. Um, so my sources are Wikipedia, an article from the New York times from October, 2019. It was kind of like marking the anniversary and okay. it's uh, called forget what you know about the black Sox scandal, an article from ESPN.com called meet Joe Jackson, the shoes and all. Um, and then a long kind of article ish thing from the society for American baseball research, which just sidebar i love that there's a society for american baseball research like, yeah um, but it's called eight myths out so okay i'm gonna start off just by telling you a little bit about a guy named joseph jefferson jackson popularly known of course as shoeless joe jackson now we did mention last week my favorite baseball movie of all time is of course field of dreams Yep. Uh, yep. <laughs> another uh, really great baseball movie I should have mentioned and didn't is the movie Eight Men Out, which is by the filmmaker John Sales. It's from the mid 1980s. I, I forgot to look up the date, um, but Who's it's, in it's that? I know David Strathairn's in it and Gordon. Is D.B. Sweeney in it? I think D.B. Sweeney's in it. I had a massive, massive crush on D.B. Sweeney post The Cutting Edge, and just was he was just a soft baby-faced yeah i love them i think he was in it i don't yeah. i didn't look it up beforehand i i do want to just mention uh I, I mentioned his name gordon clapp who oh yeah is one of my favorite actors because i've worked with him a couple times so and he's friend just, of the pod friend of <laughs> friend of life uh gordon clapp yeah um but he's in he's he's in a lot of john sales movies it's a, it's a really good sort of I don't know, 
dramatic depiction of the black sock scandal so but so if you've seen field of dreams you've probably heard of shoeless joe so i'm just let me just tell you a little bit about him he was born joseph jefferson jackson on july 16th 1888 in pickens county south carolina Mm -hmm. his father george was a sharecropper so they're very poor they were a very poor family. When he was just a baby, they moved to Pelzer, South Carolina, and then on to the town of Brandon Mill, which is kind of right outside Greenville, South Carolina. And he almost died when he was 10 years old. He got the measles, um, oh. left him paralyzed for two months. So just again, all you anti-vaxxers, vaccinated. Get vaccinated. Yep. And then he basically uh, started working in the local textile mills. And I just, just take a guess. How old do you think he was when he started working in the textile mills? 11. Oh, you got to go way down from there. Six. <laughs> he was six years old. Uh, I was hoping that he'd gotten through the measles. Nope. Nope. Okay. <laughs> sure And didn't. probably like went to work both with the measles and then partially paralyzed. I have to move my chair. So if there's a sound. There you go. There we go. Um, yeah, no, he sure he sure did not. And in fact, oh, he buddy. never got any education whatsoever. Um, oh. At the time, education was kind of considered a luxury. Well, and, I think especially really a luxury were, for the rich. Right. And I think like, especially doubly so if you were the child of a farmer, right? Like yeah. that was like, sorry, no, we need you here. Yeah, exactly. So he basically had no education. He was essentially entirely illiterate for his entire life and this is going to come up and it it affects the the price like the asking price of his memorabilia even to this day because most anything that's signed by shoeless joe is Uh actually signed by his wife but there are a few things he signed himself and if you can get your hands on something with his actual signature for instance there is an autograph of his that sold in 1990 for twenty three thousand five hundred dollars because they're just exceedingly rare he would work 12-hour shifts in this mill. He was, like, later in life embarrassed by his illiteracy. He would try to hide it. So, like, whenever he and the teammates, when he became a baseball player, whenever they go to restaurants, he would sit there and, like, wait for everyone else to order. And then he would just order something that he had heard one of them order because he didn't want to ask anyone to read him the menu. Oh. Yeah. So working 12 hour shifts in this mill, you know, almost died of measles. And then when he's 13 years old, one of the mill's owners went to his mother and said, Hey, we heard that this uh, kid of yours, this Joe kid, pretty good baseball player. And we're starting like a company baseball team. And this was a thing at the time, you know, you had the major league baseball, you had the minor leagues, but one thing that doesn't really exist now is all these semi-professional leagues. Right. And some of these would be leagues that were like run by businesses. And they would field a team out of their workers, but they were kind of semi-pro. So Joe was actually paid $2.50 to play on Saturdays. This would be the equivalent of about $78 today. So, you know, for a 13-year-old kid who likes to play baseball, that's not too bad. Not Um, bad. He was the youngest player on the team. They started him as a pitcher, (laughs) but he accidentally broke the arm of a batter with his fastball, hit him with a pitch. (laughs) And so, like, he was such a powerful pitcher, even as a teenager, that, like, after this incident, the other team's batters were like, we're not going up against that kid. So they had to move him out to the outfield. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But he became just renowned as, like, a prodigy, as a hitter. And one thing that should be stated is that Babe Ruth, who's largely considered, you know, the greatest baseball player of all time, Mm -hmm. but there's an argument out there that actually Shoeless Joe really would have been, if he had been allowed to have the career he should have had, Shoeless Joe would have been the greatest baseball player of all time. And in fact, Babe Ruth patterned his swing after Joe's. That's insane. 
Yeah. So he ultimately left this mill team in 1905 because he was getting noticed by these other semi-professional leagues. And Mm -hmm. so he started playing kind of in the regions. He started off in 1908 with a team called the Greenville Spinners. So this is in that town of Greenville, which was essentially where he lived. Mm -hmm. Um, It was a minor league team that was part of the Carolina Association. Um, Mm -hmm. When he played with the Spinners, he had a 346 batting average. Around that time, he married a young woman, and I use the word young woman very loosely because she was, in fact, 15 years old. Mm. Um, He was, I think, 20... He was, like, in his early 20s, I think. Or actually, let's see, 1908 minus 1888. Yeah, he would have been, like, 20 years old. She was 15. So, you know. Not the worst we've had on this Not the worst, but... Podcast. they, They were married for his entire life. They remained married. So she's the one who was signing his baseballs and stuff. Oh, God. Okay. Um, He ended up signing with Connie Mack's Philadelphia Athletics. Now, of course, the Philadelphia Athletics now are known as the Oakland Athletics. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, Connie Mack, I'm not going to go into it, but he's an interesting guy in and of himself. He kind of started as a baseball player, then he became a manager, then became one of kind of the most like successful, famous team owners. Mm. Kind of real instrumental in like the development of baseball as a professional sport. He purchased the contract of Shoeless Joe for $900 and moved him into the athletics organization where he went on to play for some of their various farm teams. He primarily played for the Savannah Indians with them he batted a 358 but he only played 10 major league games between 1908 and 1909 so the way this kind of and it kind of still works this way today is like you have the players they'll start in the minor leagues which are generally like a farm team for a major league team and the major league teams will have like three or four of these different farm teams and they're mm. kind of moving the players up and down, like between the okay. minors and the majors. Okay. So, and this happens a lot. You know, you'll have even like some of the big stars, like if they get injured and they have to kind of rehabilitate a little bit, they'll go play like half a season with the minors or something. So, okay. so he was kind of bouncing between the A's and their farm teams, but he never really got a chance. He also, I guess, had like a really hard time with the athletics he didn't like living in philadelphia or in any of the cities that he Mm. had to live in he also apparently suffered like pretty brutal hazing by his teammates he ended up being traded to the cleveland naps in 1910 and the naps of course went on to become my favorite team the Mm. problematically named cleveland indians naps like or i think like (laughs) I'm not sure what I, I had read once before because the Cleveland Naps, there, there's discussion. We, we had the whole discussion last time about how they, they are changing the team name. Right. One of the names that has been put out there is to go back to the Naps. Uh-huh. Um, and I was trying to figure out where Naps comes from. I think it was named after another baseball player. But then I've also read like who that was like his nickname was Nap. Okay. Um, but like then, N-A-P though? N-A-P. Is that the way it's spelled? Yeah. Okay. I've also seen it, them say it was had something to do with napkins. So I don't know. I think, okay. yeah, whatever. But, okay. Um, okay. Um, but yeah, so he joined what essentially would become very shortly after the Cleveland Indians. Within that organization, they started him off playing for the New Orleans Pelicans, where he won the batting title and then helped that team win the minor league pennant that year. So 
this is when like the star of Shoeless Joe Jackson starts to rise. Later that season, so this would have been 1910, he ended up being called up to play for the Naps. He played 20 games for them and he hit a 387 batting average. His first full season in the majors was 1911. He set a number of rookie records. In particular, his 408 batting average is still the best rookie batting average to this day. He ended up second in that league overall uh, behind Ty Cobb, who, of course, was the famously racist but also great baseball player, played by Tommy Lee Jones in a fairly mediocre movie. That's who Ray Liotta's Shoeless Joe is talking about in Field of Dreams, yeah, right? Exactly. Yes. You wouldn't believe how many guys wanted to play here. I had to beat him off with a stick. Hey, that's Smokey Joe Wood. And Mel Ott. And Gil Hodges. And Ty Cobb wanted to play. None of us could stand a son of a bitch when we were alive, so we told him to stick it. <laughs> now, the following season in 1912, he actually hit a 551 batting average, which is like unheard of. But basically, a 551 batting average means that you're getting a hit every other time you go up to bat. Wow. Which is just like, I mean, nobody does that. Yeah. They ended up trading him to the White Sox in 1915. With them, he won the American League pennant in 1917 and then the World Series that year against the New York Giants. He missed most of the 1918 season because he ended up having to go work in the shipyards because of World War I. But then he came back in 1919 where he posted a 351 batting average in the regular season and a 375 batting average in that World Series against the Cincinnati Reds. That's going to be important because that's the World Series that we're going to be talking about here. Okay. He also had a perfect fielding record during that series, but the White Sox ultimately lost that World Series to the Reds. To be continued. Um, He came back the following season in 1920, where he batted a 382. He was leading the American League in triples, but then he was suspended. And we're going to get to the story of his suspension here shortly. Okay. Just a little bit about his nickname. So where he got the nickname Shoeless Joe was back when he played for that mill team. He had managed to get a new set of cleats, um, but he hadn't broken them in. So they were giving him blisters. Mm -hmm. His feet were hurting so much that before an at-bat, he he just took them off and went up there in his socks. He ended up, because he was Shoeless Joe, he ended up hitting, you know, getting on base. And when he was actually running home from third base, one of the fans saw him and started heckling him saying, you shoeless son of a gun, you. (laughs) A simpler time. (laughs) A simpler time. (laughs) And so he was pretty much stuck with the nickname Shoeless Joe after that. Okay, so let's talk about a guy (laughs) named Arnold Rothstein. All right, let's do it. So he was nicknamed The Brain. Okay. He was born January 17th, 1882 in New York City to an affluent Jewish businessman named Abe Rothstein. Abe was known to be this really upstanding guy. Mm -hmm. Uh, He even had the nickname Abe the Just. But this did not seem to trickle down into his younger son, Arnold. Mm. So Arnold was very good at math, which comes up in his later career (laughs) okay um but he other than that he didn't give a shit about school he did have an older brother harry who was like the quote good kid went on actually to become a rabbi arnold was very resentful of his brother he was very difficult he acted out a lot his father later said that arnold always wanted to be the center of attention and he would get mad whenever he wasn't Mm. So around the time Shoeless Joe is out there, like, you know, 13 years old playing for this mill team and becoming the legend of Shoeless Joe, around the same age, Arnold Rothstein's getting involved with gambling. He was shooting dice with his friends. 
his father would come and like find him and like scold him try to like punish him for shooting Mm -hmm. dice he said later he said i always gambled i can't remember when i didn't maybe i gambled just to show my father he couldn't tell me what to do but i don't think so i think i gambled because i love the excitement when i gambled nothing else mattered so by 1910, uh, Arnold Rothstein, he was 28 years old. He moved to Manhattan's Tenderloin District and he established a casino. He also invested in a horse racing track down in Maryland. And this is where he started not just being a gambler, but being a cheater. Yeah. He starts fixing the races. His father had a lot of contacts in like the banking world. Mm-hmm. So through this kind of network of contacts, Arnold was able to make or put together this like wide network of informants. And he would pay very well for any information that would help him fix a race, fix a fight, <sighs> fix any like baseball game or any sporting event. He was so successful at this that he was a millionaire by the time he was 30. And fixing, just so that I make sure that I have this right, is that you are working with either an athlete in terms of like a fight or a team Mm -hmm. to be like, you are going to lose this Mm -hmm. game and I'm going to bet against you, bet whatever, blah, 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 so that I can win. And usually what you would want to do is like take the favorite, bribe them to lose. Because if you're favored to win, the odds are on you. Right. So if you bet for whoever's favored to win, it's like you get a little bit of money, but where you really get the money is if you bet against who's favored and then that team wins. Cause if the odds are against them, like the right. pot, the winnings are bigger. So bigger. Okay. So this is what Arnold Rothstein was doing. Now I do want to mention that it is very unclear how actually involved in the black Sox scandal Rothstein was, and I'll, mm. I'll kind of get to that. Okay. But this takes us to the Black Sox scandal of 1919. It's a little unclear where the name Black Sox comes from because apparently they were actually being called the Black Sox before this season. Oh, interesting. And one of the things I read is that the owner, Charles Comiskey, who is really known, like there's this kind of real legend around him being just very miserly, didn't want to pay for anything, didn't want to pay salaries. I'll, I'll get to that because that's it might be somewhat apocryphal. Okay. Um, but there's a story that he basically refused to pay for the team to get their uniforms washed. So they wore these white uniforms that would just get caked with mud. The nickname Black Sox kind of stuck because of that, supposedly. Okay. But it's mostly now associated with this scandal. Another thing that was going on, like I said, Comiskey, he had been a player himself between 1882 and 1894. He was deeply disliked by all of the players on the team. <laughs> okay. Um, he was sort of known to be, or or said to have been like abusive, was said to underpay his talent. Baseball teams all had what were known as a quote, reserve clause in the player contracts. So this meant that any player who refused to accept a contract would be prohibited from playing on any other professional team that was designated as quote, organized baseball. So this okay. meant basically, if they offer you a contract, you say, no, you're basically blacklisted. So you had to accept any contract that was offered. It was given. Oh, yeah. Okay. So this meant players couldn't change teams without permission. They couldn't protest their treatment. There was no union, so they had no bargaining power. Right. And because of this reserve clause, gamblers would often approach players who were strapped for cash and would pay them to throw games. You know, this is a thing, like, they talk about the Black Sox scandal as when, like, baseball lost its innocence, quote unquote. Um, Mm -hmm. But the fact is, like, this had been happening for a long time before this. Um, I think this was the first time it had ever happened in a World Series. But players were being bribed to throw games all the time. 
Okay. It also should be said that while Comiskey sucked, um, yeah, he was pretty much like all the other owners. Right. Okay. He wasn't doing anything that was particularly unusual. Unusual. In fact, the White Sox had the highest payroll in 1919. Mm. So this is a quote from that eight myths out article from the Society of Baseball Research mm-hmm. um, says this is the central thesis of Eight Men Out which is the book that the movie was based on. Charles Comiskey's quote ball players were the best and were paid as poorly as the worst as Elliot Asinoff wrote. Elliot Asinoff being the, the guy who wrote Eight Men Out. Okay. That couldn't be further from the truth. We can't climb into the heads of the Black Sox to know exactly why they threw the World Series. But the players themselves rarely claimed, as Asinoff did, that it was because of Comiskey's low salaries or poor treatment. And we now have accurate salary information to back that up. Newly available organizational contract cards at the National Baseball Hall of Fame show that the White Sox's opening day payroll of $88,461 was more than $11,500 higher than that of the National League champion Reds. several of the Black Sox players were among the highest paid at their positions. So if they did feel resentment at their salaries under the reserve clause system, so did players from 15 other major league teams. The scandal was much more complex than disgruntled players trying to get back at the big bad boss. Mm. It's also been said that one of the things that kind of spearheaded the scheme was that pitcher Eddie Sakote, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name right, it's spelled C-I-C-O-T-T-E. He was mm, yeah. kind of one of the, the people who was the most instrumental in setting up this fix. Okay. And supposedly what motivated him was that Comiskey had ordered that he be benched if he won 30 games. And this was to avoid paying him a $10,000 bonus that was in his contract if he won more than 30 games. What? Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, but again, this may not be true. So this is also from that Society of American Baseball Research. It says the incident is seen as the catalyst for Sakot's involvement in the fix, but there's no basis of truth to the story. Other White Sox players did have small performance bonuses in their contracts. For example, Lefty Williams was paid a $500 bonus for winning 20 games in 1919. Lefty Williams also was one of the uh, guilty players during the scandal. What was his name? Lefty Williams. Okay. In any event, Sakote and Chick Gandil were already conspiring with gamblers to fix the World Series several weeks before Comiskey would have had the chance to renege on a bonus payment. And if Sakote had pitched better in the pennant clincher he would have earned his 30th win regardless so again kind of who knows i think it just kind of comes down to like greedy baseball players yeah (laughs) like yeah i'm sure they weren't being treated great you know and they didn't have bargaining power but i think it was just like they saw an easy score and went for it like i don't think it's much more complicated than that Yeah. Now, within the White Sox clubhouse, it was divided between the honest players who were sort of known as the, quote, clean Sox, and then these players who were already known to accept bribes to throw games. Wow. Um, Okay. Now, these two factions really didn't get along or socialize at all. What's interesting (laughs) is that it's not really clear if Shoeless Joe was kind of part of either faction. Shoeless Mm -hmm. Joe, he was kind of their biggest star, Uh um, but he was also like, always kind of an outsider like I, I and he was like known to be very shy so oh, yeah. i don't know why i'm just like a heart i'm just already oh, heartbroken just wait just wait okay <laughs> um, great now another myth uh, according to the society of american baseball research in this new york times article another myth is that basically these gamblers run supposedly by arnold rothstein mm-hmm. you know as like the puppet master 
had like conned these naive, uneducated baseball players. Okay. You know, there's a couple problems with this. I, I just, I need to say, as we've talked about Dutch Schultz and other things, the Jewish gangster was absolutely a thing. Mm-hmm. It absolutely existed. But when you kind of peel into a lot of it, as always, you just find a lot of anti-Semitism. Yeah, I was going to say. A lot of assumptions being made. Yeah. So this is from that Society of American Baseball Research. It says, Arnold Rostein, known as the big bankroll, was credited as the mastermind of the plot by his henchman, A. Battelle, in a self-serving interview with Elliot Asinoff years later, again for the book Eight Men Out. But it may have still gone through even without the involvement of the New York Kingpin. Fixing the World Series was a total team effort, and the White Sox players did most of the heavy lifting. Chick Gandell and Eddie Sakote separately and together first approached Sport Sullivan, a prominent Boston bookmaker, and Sleepy Bill Burns, a former major league pitcher, to get the fix rolling. Then they began recruiting their teammates in several meetings before the World Series. Rostin eventually did get involved, but he was far from the only underworld figure to play a role. Mm. And in fact, a lot of what I've read says that Rothman kind of came in late and really didn't necessarily have that much to do with it. Okay. So he's been drawn as this sort of like ringleader. Yeah. And it's interesting, mastermind. you know, because when I told you that I wanted to do the story, I was like, I'm going to do it as like this kind of twin bio of Shoeless Joe and Arnold Rothstein. Cause mm-hmm. I had really bought, I had sort of bought the myth that Arnold Rothstein was the one behind it. Mm-hmm. It wasn't really until doing the research that I was like, Oh, it may be more complicated than that. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is from that New York Times article. It says, the popular version of events right after the scandal was that, like Adam and Eve in the garden, the innocent players were corrupted by a snake of foreign origin. Mm. 1921, Mm. the Dearborn Independent, for example, ran an article headlined, quote, Jewish gamblers corrupt American baseball. Come on. Yep. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) For fuck's sake, guys. It claimed all along the line of investigation, the names of Jews were plentifully sprinkled. This is from the article. And what, 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 sorry, I'm having, (laughs) I'm having a stroke. Um, what is the publication? This was the Dearborn Independent. So I'm guessing from Dearborn, Michigan. Okay. But it's a 1921 article from that time period. Right. And they're just spouting off. They're just like, we're in Dearborn, Michigan. We know things. And so, <laughs> <laughs> Look, we know things. Yeah, we know we about know. cold. We, know, we know about, about the Jews. Yes. <laughs> and we know about baseball and the Upper Peninsula. Yeah. So, so hot take from the, Deer- hot, from the Dearborn <laughs> Morning News. <laughs> So continuing with the New York Times article, it says America's distrust of recent immigrants, whether Germans, Italians, Irish, Slavs, or Jews, had been brought to a boil with the Great War. So this is, you got to keep in mind, this is right after World War I. Nativism spilled over into a clash of urban versus rural values, most visibly in the rise of women's suffrage, simultaneous with the state-by-state spread of prohibition. There was no golden age in America. And I think, like, hot take, like spoiler alert a lot of what this story for me is going to be is sort of showing how i do actually think shoeless joe was screwed by this whole thing Mm. i do think he he probably was the like naive uneducated guy who kind of got sort of tarred with this scandal right but i think like you got to be real careful where you hold up shoeless joe is the like all-american boy right represents all of these baseball players right and then the evil jew arnold rothstein coming right so just 
you know, keep that in mind as the story continues. Okay. And Shoeless Joe didn't have any, up, up to this point, there's no evidence that shows that he was taking any kind of bribes or anything like that? I'm just about to get to that. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Lead in. So the scandal... The, the or I should say the scam really started to take off with a meeting that took place between some of the White Sox players on September 21st, 1919. So this was just like a little over a week before the start of the series. Okay. It was in first baseman Chick Gandell's room at the Ansonia Hotel in New York City. It's not entirely clear who got it started, like if Gandell was approached or if he had approached someone else. It's never been really clear whose idea it was to fix the World Series like Arnold Rothstein is always blamed for it. Right. He was involved in some capacity. But like I said, it may be more that the players kind of started it. Mm. Particularly Chick Gendel and Eddie Sakote. So some of the players were already in this meeting. They were already committed to throwing the series. And then others were just there to like listen to the proposal. One of whom was the third baseman and shortstop Buck Weaver. He attended all of the meetings, but he didn't end up taking any of the money and he didn't participate he was though one of the players who was later suspended because even though he didn't participate in the fix he didn't try to stop it Ah. didn't speak out against it yeah so there are at least five of the meeting participants who are known to have like been instrumental in what happened okay and then like i said buck weaver he knew about it but he didn't take money or participate there was also an infielder named fred mcmullen who heard about the scam he kind of like overheard it in the locker room and went to them and said hey i'll report you if you don't like include me he wasn't even like really gonna play much in the series so he didn't have any like he didn't have any like impact on what happened but he took the payoff you know they paid him off he kept his mouth shut so he also got suspended with everything else this group who included chick gendel eddie sakote center fielder oscar happy felsch uh, fred mcmullen shortstop charles swede reisberg and reisberg was kind of later acknowledged to have been like the muscle who like sort of kept everyone in line Mm. Uh, Buck Weaver, Claude Lefty Williams, who was another pitcher, like Eddie Sakote, and then Shoeless Joe. These men later became known as the Eight Men Out. <sighs> also later banned was second baseman Joe Gideon, who played for the St. Louis Browns. Okay, He wasn't part of the scandal, but he learned about it because he was friends with Swede Reisberg, and so he ended up placing bets on the Reds. <sighs> so. Shoeless Joe was mentioned as having been a participant, but he didn't attend any of the meetings. He played almost perfectly during the series, and it's real unclear whether he ever took a payoff. So I'll get to that in a little bit. Okay. Initially, the pitcher Red Faber was supposed to pitch the first game. He was one of the, quote, clean socks, but he ended up getting like a real nasty case of the flu. He was supposed to start the series. So catcher Ray Schalk, who was also one of the clean socks, he said later that he thought if Faber had been pitching instead of Sakot, the scam would never have really been able to take place because uh, Faber wouldn't have participated in it. But since he got sick, since he got the flu, the starting pitchers ended up being Eddie Sakot and Lefty Williams. Okay. By October 1st, the day of game one, rumors had started to spread amongst gamblers that the series had been fixed. The White Sox had been the early favorites, but then suddenly there was this like flurry of bets being placed on the Reds. The rumors were so widespread that actually reporters began to hear about them. Oh, Yeah, including uh, Hugh Fullerton of the Chicago Herald and Examiner. Mm -hmm. Fullerton went to a guy named Christy Mathewson, who was a former baseball player who had kind of gone on to be an author. Mathewson had also heard some of these rumors. So Fullerton was like, hey, let's like compare notes. Let's watch the series and compare notes. They ended up being kind of instrumental in exposing it. 
So let's get to the series itself. I'm not going to okay. promise for all you non-baseball people, I'm not going <laughs> to narrate every game here. <laughs> okay. This is Great. not a play-by-play, but we're just going to talk about like the big important stuff. So yeah. game one started, Eddie Sakote was the opening pitcher. After throwing a strike, he ended up hitting the leadoff hitter for the Reds, a guy named Maury Rather in the back. This was apparently a prearranged signal to the gamblers, confirming that the players were in fact going through with it. <sighs> In the fourth inning, what should have been a routine double play, Sakote made a bad throw to Swede Reisberg at second base. This immediately started sparking suspicion with like all the different sports journalists. Pitcher Lefty Williams lost three games, which was a series record. Uh-huh. Um, now, this was kind of offset a little bit by rookie Dickie Kerr, who wasn't part of the fix and actually won his first two starts in the series. Okay. But Lefty Williams was like, I mean, he was a major pitcher. So for him to yeah. lose three games, like that doesn't look great. Yeah. About halfway through the series, though, the gamblers all started to renege on their payouts. So basically the thing was like, we'll pay off every time you lose a game. Well, then they started losing these games and the gamblers stopped paying them. And they said, well, we can't pay you right now because it's all tied up with the bookies. Mm-hmm. Well, this pissed off the players, the, yeah. you know, these, the, the, the cheating players. So they actually tried to double cross the gamblers. They went on to win game six and seven. This was a best of nine series. Like now the World Series is a best of seven. Oh, Back okay. then it was a best of nine series. And in fact, game six, the game winning home run was from Chick Gandell, who was like one of the ringleaders. Okay. So it seems pretty clear they were trying to kind of take it back at this point. This led supposedly to the gamblers then turning around and threatening the families of the cheating players. What um, the? Okay. Wow. Bas- yeah. Basically, I don't know why I'm surprised. Yeah. Basically saying you better lose game eight or we're going to, we're going to cause some, some damage. <sighs> Now, this has, again, been called into question. Okay. So specifically in the book, Eight Men Out, Elliot Asinoff talks about a hitman named Harry F., who was supposedly hired by Arnold Rothstein and went to Lefty Williams and said, if you don't lose game eight, we're going to like kill you, kill your family, whatever. But again, from the Society of Baseball Research, it says, it's easy to believe the Chicago White Sox players could be the targets of an Al Capone-style takeout by gamblers if they didn't hold up their end of the fix. But Elliot Asanoff, again, writer of Eight Men Out, has said on multiple occasions that he invented the Hitman character on the advice of his publisher to guard against copyright infringement. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> which I'm not, I don't really understand how that yeah, works, but okay, okay. says an, an attorney recommended that he do so in case anyone used the name Harry F in future books and articles without citing his work. Many writers have done just that, but there's little <laughs> evidence to substantiate the claim that William's life was in danger. The primary source is an anecdote by a neighbor boy first told four decades after the fact who claimed lefty's wife once told him the pitcher had been threatened. Okay. So, well, who knows? Yeah. It could have happened, could not have happened. We just don't know. But not a deeply reliable source. But yeah. it does seem like the White Sox were trying to maybe dial it back. Yeah. Um, maybe trying to double cross the gamblers, but then they did end up losing game eight. So Williams, Lefty Williams, started game eight. He gave up four straight one-out hits for three runs before Kid Gleason, who was the manager, relieved him. They ended up losing game eight, thus losing the series on October 9th, 1919. So supposedly, aside from Weaver, who didn't ultimately participate, that's that Buck Weaver. He was the guy who, like, listened, but ended up not taking the money. Mm -hmm. And possibly Shoeless Joe, who it's never really been proven that he ever took a payout. The players were paid $5,000 each, which today would be about $75,000. Gandil, the ringleader, 
ultimately received about $35,000, which would be about 500, a little over $500,000 in today's money. Wow. So the aftermath, the rumors kind of started right away. Like people were watching the series being like, this doesn't look right. Mm-hmm. So it followed the 1920 team as they went up against the Cleveland Indians for the American League pennant. Stories of corruption were spreading amongst other teams, amongst team owners, and in the press, and even with the fans. Just nobody believed this. Nobody believed that this World Series was legit. So in September of 1920, about a year after the fix, a grand jury was convened. When he was put on the stand, Eddie Sakote confessed. This was on September 28th of 1920, and he basically explained how the whole thing worked. Oh, shit. Okay. At the time, the White Sox were in a tie with Cleveland for the first place in the American League. To win the pennant that year, the White Sox needed to win all three of their remaining games and then had to hope for Cleveland to stumble in at least two games. Mm. But even with the entire season on the line, Comiskey, the team owner, he suspended the seven remaining players. Chick Candell had already left the, he basically had already left the majors at this point. Okay. I think he took his big ass $35,000 payout and was like, see ya. Laters. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So there, but there were still seven players. Comiskey suspended them immediately. The White Sox ended up losing two of their remaining three games in their last series against the St. Louis Browns. And they finished the season two games behind Cleveland. Cleveland, of course, went on to win that World Series. Mm-hmm. The grand jury handed down indictments for conspiracy to defraud against the eight men out, the eight players, and five gamblers on October 22nd, 1920. After the indictments, Chicago Daily News sports writer Charles Owens wrote the famous headline, which was the, the Say It Ain't So Joe headline. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He actually is the one who coined the exact phrase, which was sort of taken from this somewhat sounds like questionable article in the minnesota daily star that article was called it ain't true is it joe youngster asks Mm. um and that article (laughs) relates the following anecdote it says when jackson left the criminal court building in the custody of a sheriff after telling his story to the grand jury he found several hundred youngsters aged from six to 16 waiting for a glimpse of their idol one child stepped up to the outfielder and grabbing his coat sleeve said, it ain't true, is it, Joe? Yes, kid, I'm afraid it is, Jackson replied. <laughs> the boys opened a path for the ball player and stood in silence until he passed out of sight. Well, I'd never have thought it, sighed the lad. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. So now, what But it- this is also, like I said, like this might have just been some made up bullshit. Right. <laughs> so. Right, right, right. You don't know if this something to remember. So what did what did? Sorry, I'm pouring some water. What did like what did Shoeless Joe say about this? Well, are you gonna get? Are you gonna yeah, get I, well, okay. it, I mean, it's like real unclear because it, it kind of like it sounds like he said different things at different times, and I'll kind of talk about why here. Okay. Kind of in a minute okay so the trial actually convened after some delays in 1921 the prosecutors named the white Sox right fielder shano collins who is one of the clean socks they named him as the wronged party in the indictments because they're basically arguing like this fraud like this scheme had defrauded him of 1784 dollars so it was like i think just kind of a legal way to like get it on paper kind of thing Right. Now, before the trial started, some of the evidence, including signed confessions from Sukkot and Shoeless Joe, more on what I think about the Shoeless Joe confession, they went missing. And then at this point, Sukkot and Shoeless Joe recanted their confessions. Mm -hmm. Years later, the confessions were found in the possession of Comiskey's lawyer. 
And I, I didn't read any more about that, but that seems real weird to me. Yeah, okay. Pitcher Bill Burns, who was not one of the eight men out, but was, because I think he was a former player at this point. I think he had already retired, but he was also indicted. And he basically, it seems like, served as a go-between between between the players and the gamblers. Um, And he's the one who really made the case that Arnold Rothstein was behind it. He said that he ran messages between the players and someone whose initials were, quote, A-R. About the meeting in the Ansonia Hotel, he said, I told them I had the $100,000 to handle the throwing of the World Series. I also told them that I had the names of the men who were going to finance it. I told them they were waiting below. So basically, he turned state's evidence and just, like, snitched on everybody. Okay. So the trial started on July 18th. Burns gave the most explosive testimony. He also said that Sukkot had told him that he would, quote, throw the ball clear out of the park if that's what was needed to throw the game. The jury deliberated for less than three hours before finding the defendants not guilty. So basically, baseball, you know, there's the baseball commission, right? Mm -hmm. This is like the head of Major League Baseball. There had already been a lot of complaints about this commission before this ever started. Um, just and how it was running things. Eventually, they had gone to this guy whose name was Kennesaw Mountain Landis. He was a former judge and like a huge baseball fan. And they asked him to join the baseball commission. He said, well, no, I don't want to join the baseball commission. I want to be the baseball commissioner. I want to basically have unfettered power in baseball yeah yeah okay <laughs> this was I mean, this wasn't even because of the black Sox scandal but he he was named commissioner kind of right before this whole thing happened so even with the acquittal he immediately placed the eight men out onto the ineligible list this essentially left them indefinitely suspended from organized professional baseball so this is on august 3rd of that year he said in his statement he said regardless of the verdict of juries no player who throws a ball game no player who undertakes or promises to throw a ball game no player who sits in confidence with a bunch of crooked ball players and gamblers where the ways and means of throwing a game are discussed and does not promptly tell his club about it will ever play professional baseball it's over for these guys yeah they're done they're they're done yeah um okay so let's talk about sheila's joe and whether or not he was guilty okay so to this day it's very controversial Mm -hmm. you know some people say well there's enough evidence to say he at least knew about it he might have taken a payoff but there are a lot of people who think he was just scapegoated some people say it's because his teammates were very resentful of him because he was such a big star that there was just kind of a like let's bring him down too kind of Mm -hmm. thing but here's some things we know about sheila's joe he okay. never attended any of the meetings. Okay. He was, he's never been proven to have taken a payment. Okay. And is actually said to have refused on two separate occasions to take a payment. Lefty Williams, who was like his roommate when they're on the road and who was trying to get him in on the fix, supposedly tossed like a bundle of $5,000 onto the floor of the hotel room and refused to pick it up. And so did Joe. Now, again, this is all coming from Lefty Williams. So who fucking knows? Right. But you could say at this point, well, you know, maybe Joe knew about it and didn't report it okay right you know sort of like this buck weaver well apparently joe actually did try to tell comiskey about the fix but comiskey thinking he was just another bitching ball player just coming in to like complain about his salary or whatever actually refused to meet with him during the world series he had the leading batting average of either team at 375 he also threw out five base runners and handled 30 balls in the outfield with no errors Okay. He did bat worse in the games that the White Sox lost, where he averaged about 286. But that's like real common. Like if you're on the losing team, like you just tend to play a little worse. So yeah, that's why you're the losing team. I yeah. mean, 
Yeah. So that doesn't necessarily say anything because even that average 286, it's lower than 375, but it's still better than most. Like it's an above average batting average for sure. Right. And then even in the losing games, he had six RBIs and he had a double in the decisive game eight, which they did lose, but he had a double. So like he wasn't playing bad. Yeah. <laughs> like Eddie Sakot was like, you know, blowing standard double plays, like routine yeah. double plays and pitching wild and, you know, all this stuff. And Julius Jones just out there playing the fucking game. Yeah. Um, and in fact, there's one play in particular that's always scrutinized. So in the fifth inning of game four, there was a Reds player on second base. The, the Reds player who was at bat hit a single out to left field where Jackson was. He caught it, caught that batter out, tried to throw it home to get the player on second out. The ball was cut off by Sakot. And it's likely that Droz throw would have actually beat the batter home if Sakot hadn't interrupted it. So basically, Jackson's out there in left field. He throws home the second base batter. You know, rounds third is going home. Uh, Shoeless Joe tries to throw him out, hurls it for home plate, and Eddie Sakot catches it instead on the pitcher's mound, and then throws it home, putting like a one second or two second delay into the play, which allows right. the Reds to score. So that's Sakot's fault. That's not Jackson's fault. Mm-hmm. And Chick Gandell actually later admitted that he was screaming at Sakot to intercept the throw. So the run scored and the White Sox lost the game two to zero. Now later, possibly regretting what they did to him, a lot of the implicated players have admitted that Joe is never present. He was not part of it. Lefty Williams, who, like I said, was his roommate, basically said they name dropped him with the gamblers to sort of give them more credibility, to give the, their scam more credibility. In the trial, Shoeless Joe was represented by the team's attorney, a guy named Alfred Austrian, rather than his own attorney. That's a real clear conflict of interest. Yeah. And then during this trial, Austrian actually convinced him, who, remember, Shoeless Joe is illiterate, to sign a waiver of immunity. So they tried to offer him immunity. Mm-hmm. And this Alfred Austrian had him sign it away. A 1993 okay. statistical analysis of his performance concluded that there was, quote, substantial support to Jackson's subsequent claims of innocence. But everyone points out, well, he did supposedly confess when he went before the grand jury. Confessions don't mean shit. Sorry. Right. Sorry, guys. I mean, most confessions, like a lot of confessions don't mean well, shit. And that's that's my that's my thought on this. Uh, and, and so he offered some sort of confession to the grand jury uh, in 1920. And then news accounts quoted him saying, this is supposedly Shoeless Joe's quote. It says, when a Cincinnati player would bat a ball out in my territory, I'd muff it if I could. That is, fail to catch it. But if it would look too much like crooked work to do that, I'd be slow and make a throw to the infield that would be short. My work netted the Cincinnati team several runs that they never would have had if we had been playing on the square. So that seems pretty straightforward, right? Mm -hmm. Except that quote that was in the newspapers, that is not in the like record of his grand jury. What the? Okay. He never said it. Supposedly there was this confession that had been lost and then found with Comiskey's lawyers later on. That's Uh like a signed confession. But the thing is, again, the dude's fucking illiterate, can barely sign his own name. So they could have put anything in front of him. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, none of the eight men out ever played baseball again. At one point, Swede Reisberg and several of the other Black Sox, they tried to organize, like they tried to kind of turn the infamy into something that would make the money. So they wanted to like stage these like barnstorming exhibition games. And they were going to get other professional players to come play them. It's kind of like like the Harlem Globetrotters, where they're right. like not, you know, it's sort of more for entertainment than it's right. not. Well, Kennesaw Mountain Landis was not having this. <laughs> and he said, basically, well, if any of the existing players in my league play in any of these exhibition games, they will also be banned for life. Ooh. 
And then when Swede tried to schedule an exhibition game in Chicago, the Chicago City Council threatened to revoke the license of any ballpark that hosted them. So okay. they weren't they weren't coming just back. not having it. No, nope. <laughs> yeah, not having it. The White Sox crashed to seventh place in the 1921 season and wouldn't factor in another pennant race for 15 years. So not until wow. 1936. They wouldn't win another World Series until 2005. So I didn't mention it when I was talking about baseball curses, but people have talked about the curse of the Black Sox. Okay. Over the next 20 years, Shoeless Joe, he would play semi-professionally under assumed names for a bunch of teams throughout Georgia and South Carolina. Not even minor league teams. Like going back to like his mill teams, basically. Yeah. And then he actually would even manage some of these teams. In 1922, he and his wife moved to Savannah, Georgia, where they opened a dry cleaning business. In 1933, they moved back to Greenville in South Carolina. They opened a barbecue restaurant and then Joe Jackson's liquor store, which they operated until his death. Now, this is uh, one of those gets you in the feels moments. So at some point while he was operating this liquor store, Ty Cobb and a sports writer, a guy named Grantland Rice, actually went into the store to make a purchase. Mm -hmm. Uh, They grabbed their liquor, went up to the counter where Joe was working. Joe showed no signs that he recognized Ty Cobb, who he had played against. So as Ty Cobb's making his purchase, he finally says, don't you know me, Joe? And Joe said, sure, I know you, Ty, but I wasn't sure you wanted to know me. A lot of them don't. <sighs> yeah. Oh, he, he started developing heart trouble. And then in 1951, he died at the age of 64 of a heart attack. He was the first of the eight men out to die. He and his mm-hmm. wife never had kids. He, he did raise two of his nephews. Mm-hmm. Um, but he and his wife never had kids. He remains banned, so he's ineligible for the Baseball Hall of Fame. Are you uh, serious? Yep. In fact, Hall of Famers Bud Selig and Ted Williams in 1998 petitioned to have his ban lifted, to have him reinstated. They said, quote, he served his sentence, but the petition was rejected. Um, but even with the ban, he's considered to this day one of, if not possibly, the greatest baseball player of all time. Like I said, Babe Ruth stole his swing from Shoeless Joe. Wow. It's just Shoeless Joe just never had the opportunity to have the career to yeah. like put himself in the history books. You know, people have tried off and on to like get him reinstated. Uh, he can't be in the Baseball Hall of Fame, but like parks have been named after him. Other memorials mm-hmm. have been dedicated to him. I think it's becoming more and more like the consensus that he kind of got fucked. Mm-hmm. Like he really wasn't part of the conspiracy. Yeah. This was interesting. He actually has a great, great grandnephew, a guy named Joe Jackson. In fact, Joseph Ray Jackson, uh-huh. who joined the Citadel Military College's baseball team in 2013, where he batted a 386. He was later drafted by the Texas Rangers and made his professional debut with their minor league team, the Spokane Indians, that year. Mm. I believe still playing in the minors today like still a prospect and so here's his quote he says everyone kids around about it even umpires kid around about it sometimes i tell them about it and sometimes i don't it depends it's something i don't talk about that much if they really want to know about it i'll tell them wow arnold rothstein pops up in the great gatsby Uh fictionalized version of him a guy in in the great gatsby he's called meyer wolfsheim Uh and there's a whole thing in that book about how meyer wolfsheim fixed the 1919 world series narrator nick carraway says about wolfsheim he says the idea staggered me i remembered of course that the world series had been fixed in 1919 but if i had thought of it at all i would have thought of it as a thing that merely happened the end of some inevitable chain It never occurred to me that one man could start to play with the faith of 50 million people with the single-mindedness of a burglar blowing a safe. 
this has also added a lot to the the idea that Rothstein was the puppet master. And like right. I said, until this weekend when I was finishing up my research, I believed that Arnold Rothstein was the puppet master. I don't think Arnold Rothstein was a good guy. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> I mean, he was a gambler. He was a gangster. He was fixing right. races, fixing baseball games. He was involved. But I think the puppet master, or the two puppet masters, were Chick Gandell and Eddie Sakote. Those were yeah. the guys, and maybe to a degree Lefty Williams, those were the guys who were really driving this. Yeah. Arnold Rothstein was shot during a business meeting at the Park Central Hotel in New York City in 1928. He died two days later at the Stuyvesant Polyclinic Hospital in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. It's thought that he was shot because he owed debts from a three-day high-stakes poker game, after which he owed $320,000, which would be about $4.8 million today. <sighs> He claimed, ironically, that the game was fixed. Okay. (laughs) So he refused to pay up. Gambler George Hump McManus was arrested, but later quitted of his murder. And that is the story of the Black Sox scandal of 1919. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, what do you think? From what I say, do you think Sheila's Joe was... I, yeah, it seems like, it seems very, I don't see anything pointing to it being clear that he was involved with the exception of like this confession that we don't know about. Right. Well, Um, and like this whole idea that like Lefty Williams had tried to offer him money. Yeah. Like that tells you that he had to have known about it. Yeah. Which seems damning until you hear about how Charles Comiskey wouldn't meet with him when apparently he was going to go tell him. Yeah. Yeah. I think he got a bad rap. I think he got a bad deal. Yeah. So, I mean, this definitely, and, and like I did after our last episode, I was like, I need to watch field of dreams again and Uh still fucking love that movie. Yeah. Yeah. But it just, it's even more poignant when you really watch it with the idea that like this guy got railroaded. Yeah. Well done. Sad story. That made me sad. Yeah. Way to go. Way to make me sad. Um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I am going to do a happier baseball story next week because uh, I'm going to talk about the Negro Leagues and I'm specifically going to talk about Satchel Paige, who's maybe the greatest pitcher in the history of the game. So fantastic. That's a much more, okay. I mean, there's, there's some, there's some dark parts of that story too, but it, it's much more uplifting than this. <laughs> so. Thank God. Awesome. Okay. So I'm going to get into my story here in just the first, in a, in a moment, but you know how I like to do. Yeah. Okay. So Scotty, you and I have, we frequently talk about taking road trips, yeah. various national parks, Grand Canyon, etc. Yeah. So here's a little, here's a little hypothetical for you. So let's say that we decide to take a road trip to Yellowstone uh-huh. and like see the sites. Yeah. And let's also say that at some point during this trip, you make me mad okay. and I decide to grab a big rock and bludgeon you to death. I mean, seems unlikely, but not impossible. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Possible, if not probable. Right. Um, okay. So let's say, yeah, I decide to bludgeon you to death okay. because of a little loophole that exists within the sixth amendment of the constitution. It is completely possible that I could drop the rock next to your body, mm-hmm. walk away from you, go into a police station, confess that I just killed you and get off scot-free. What? 
This is the story of Yellowstone National Park's Zone of Death. Oh, shit. <laughs> I have never heard of this before. I oh, am, my gosh. Okay. And I'm rubbing my hands together feverishly. Fantastic. Sources for this are Wikipedia, an article from Mental Floss titled The Perfect Crime May Be Possible in Yellowstone Park by Jake Rawson, an article from Vox called Yellowstone Has a 50 Square Mile Zone of Death Where You Can Get Away with Murder by Dylan Matthews, episode of NPR's podcast titled The Loophole, and a legal paper titled The Perfect Crime by Brian Kalt. So let's jump in. The Sixth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution reads in part, quote, in all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury of the state and district wherein the crime shall have been committed. Okay. So in 2004, Brian Kalt, he's an untenured professor of law at Michigan State University. And part of him being an untenured professor, there's like a couple of stipulations. And one of them is, is that he has to publish a paper every year and his wife is getting ready to like give birth. So he's like, fuck, what the fuck am I going to write about? Because he knows he's got to get it done before she gives birth. Yeah. He was actually attempting to write a paper on the Sixth Amendment and specifically his aim had been to write about how some states allow a trial to be held in one of two neighboring counties, depending on how close to the dividing line the crime was committed. Okay. So he's looking into this stuff and he's seeing that like almost 100% of the time district boundaries follow state lines, Yeah. but he keeps seeing this one case where people are like, well, except in the case of the district of Wyoming. And so he's like, what the fuck is going on with Wyoming? So he starts poking around Little sidebar, Yellowstone National Park was established in 1872. It was also just sidebar information. It was the first designated U.S. National Park. Oh, it's the first? Yeah, Yellowstone was the first. That's cool. I didn't know. Yeah. It sits on 3,468 square miles of land that for the most part resides in Wyoming. Yeah. But the borders of the park actually extend a teeny little bit into Montana to the north and Idaho to the west. Okay. That little Idaho section is what made Cult be like, Uh So like I said, Yellowstone was established in 1872, and this was years before Wyoming, Idaho, and Montana actually joined the union. They were just like territories at that point. And also another little piece of information is that Yellowstone is and always has been federal land. Right. Okay. Okay. So across the country, federal land is split up into its corresponding state and federal district courts Mm -hmm. with the exception for Yellowstone. And this is where everything goes tits up. Mm, Yellowstone's land was assigned fully to Wyoming's district court, even though those two little portions fall into Idaho and Montana. Okay. So those portions of Idaho and Montana state land belong to the district of Wyoming. That, uh, yeah, I uh, can already predict problems. <laughs> yeah. So unlike every other district in every other state in the country, the district of Wyoming includes lands in other states. Mm-hmm. So let's say a park ranger. <laughs> let's go back <laughs> to this hypothetical of me bludgeoning Scotty. Okay. Let's say I'm enjoying this hypothetical. (laughs) I knew you would. Uh, So let's say a park ranger or something catches me right after I've bludgeoned Scotty with this rock. 
law enforcement would put me in handcuffs and take me hundreds of miles away. It's like 400 and some odd miles away to Cheyenne, which is the hub of the district court of Wyoming, because technically I would have taken Scotty out in the district of Wyoming, even though it was in Idaho. Mm -hmm. Okay. But Article three of section two of the U.S. Constitution says that the trial shall be held in said state where the crime shall have been committed. And if I murdered you in that zone of death, the state where I committed the crime would be Idaho and not Wyoming, while the district in which I committed the crime would be Wyoming and not Idaho. Okay. Okay. I I just sidebar, just need to comment on how excited you are when you said the word or the phrase, if I murdered you. (laughs) Yeah. Your face lit up like a Right. (laughs) Just thrilled at the idea of me like jumping onto your back like a spider monkey with a rock. Um, Okay. So if I'm a smart and savvy murderer, I will say, "Uh uh-uh, hold up. I invoke my right to a trial in Idaho. Yeah. Okay. So they have to go, oh, fuck, okay, blah, 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 take whatever. Okay. She invokes her, her right to a trial in Idaho. That section of the sixth amendment, it's called the vicinage clause uh-huh. requires local juries. And the language used says that the jury must be from both the state and the judicial district in which the crime was committed, so which we- means- The only place my jury could come from is that 50 square mile area of Idaho, which is national park land, which is national park land and has exactly zero residents, right? No one lives there. Whoops. Yeah. Now the entire Montana section of Yellowstone actually has about three dozen residents. Okay. So, so I can't murder you in Montana. (laughs) Because you could feasibly get a jury. You could cobble together a jury. But if I murder you on that little sliver of land in Idaho, there is nobody to form a jury at my trial. Wow. Brian Culp finds this and he's basically like, uh, (laughs) guys. (laughs) Um, Real quick, guys. Yeah, Yeah. just heads up, everybody. (laughs) He also says that the fix to this is extraordinarily simple. Congress just needs to like redraw the district line so that the Wyoming portion is in the district of Wyoming. Montana is in the district of Montana. Idaho is in the district of Idaho. That would allow the jury to be pulled from anywhere in those districts and not just like this teeny tiny Venn diagram sliver. Halt in his interview with Mental Floss says, quote, I like to think that there are two kinds of people who sit around thinking about how to get away with murder. Psychopaths (laughs) and then neurotic people who are afraid of psychopaths yeah well, yeah i like we have 100 talked about this we firmly fall into the latter category yeah um and it's why we like to talk about serial killers and murderers so much and so cult is also falls into that latter category right in his 2005 paper the perfect crime cult writes about this loophole as a as a cautionary tale right yeah. like he's been like hey this is possible right and so maybe like we should bring some attention to this and redraw these district lines He warns that if the Constitution is to be respected, a murderer could walk. Yeah. He also says, quote, the trial judge could probably find a way to convict the person. The prosecutor would look at my theory and say the purpose of the provision is to let communities govern themselves, not to follow pointless formalities and let a killer go free. But the defense Mm -hmm. could say that the constitutional text is perfectly clear as written and must be followed. Yeah. I mean, and and like a 
first year law student working for the defense would figure this out. Mm-hmm. Alt's full paper is available online. It's only 15 pages long. You can and should go read it <laughs> prior <laughs> to publishing it because he was like, I'm like, I, I, I can't publish this and basically be like, hey, everybody, there's a murder zone. I know. I was like, as we, as we were getting into this, I was like, okay, listeners, like, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Don't take ideas. Like, (laughs) yeah, this is for information only. Information only. But so before he publishes it, he tries to get the attention of Congress, Department Mm -hmm. of Justice. He wrote to senators and congressmen. He wrote to more than two dozen people total. No one responded. Just no fucks to give. No fucks to give. Now, there's been a lot of people, both legal folks and like lay people. People who have read Colt's paper and they're pretty like nonchalant about the whole thing. There's this whole kind of like, there's no way that a judge will let a killer go free. At the end of the day, murder is still a crime. Mm-hmm. But Colt and me, if I'm being honest, is not soothed by that. Colt no. says, that's not a legal argument. Tell me how the Sixth Amendment wouldn't apply. Yeah, because I mean, like people get off on technicalities all the fucking time. Well, and we can come back to this, but the last time I checked, rape was also a crime and Bill Uh Cosby just got off, not because he didn't commit the crime, but because his due process was not followed. Right. Which is like, I mean, because the law, like mm -hmm. what's written in law is what's written in law. And like, Mm -hmm. if it goes to the Supreme Court, I'm not trusting anybody. Yeah, precisely. Now, the Constitution has a certain reputation. Supreme Court Chief Justice John Berger has said that the Constitution is, quote, as near a perfect document as has ever been written. Mm -hmm. Lynn Cheney says, quote, without the Constitution, we would be an entirely different country than we are today. And Mm -hmm. Senator Ben Cardin has said the Constitution, this amazing fabric of our nation is our protection, but it's not perfect. I mean, the like we've had to amend it a whole bunch of times. <laughs> right. And like, we like, it's not perfect. We're not completely protected by it. We can no. barely parse out the meaning of the second amendment, let alone come to an agreement about what it means. Right. There's apparently a loophole in the presidential term limits as set out in the constitution. There are disputes about how exactly line of succession works line mm-hmm. of succession works <laughs> which cult that. is like cult is like it incentivizes people to kill candidates yeah i, I remember that came up on the west wing mm-hmm. it was like yeah this is an area where you want ambiguity and right 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 <laughs> and it's not super clear about whether you can impeach someone who has already left office yeah we and just so went through on. that mm-hmm. right? and so on and so on and so on so it is an ambitious document but it is not perfect right so cult found this loophole and he tries to alert the proper channels. No one pays him any mind. And now the poor dude, like he's like, he literally says, he's like, I stay up at night wondering if somebody is going to take somebody into this section of Yellowstone, murder them, and then point to my paper as to like, you can't, sorry, you can't cobble together a jury for me. I mean, they'll just point to our podcast now. (laughs) (laughs) All right. All right. All right. The views of this podcast. Um, (laughs) disclaimer here yeah um yeah so he's he's like very concerned about the fact that he's basically published an instruction manual on how to murder somebody in yellowstone i mean i would be if i was him yeah right 
Now, no one who could actually like do like an actual official damn thing about it paid any mind. Mm -hmm. But after he published this paper, stuff like NPR and the National Enquirer, you know, started writing about it. And a novelist by the name of C.J. Box wrote a book called Free Fire. It's a suspense thriller that's based on Colt's premise. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. Free Fire catches the eye of Wyoming Senator Mike Enzi, who's probably also like, uh, guys, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and Enzi reaches out to cult. They have a couple of like productive conversations, but in the end, nothing happens. Yeah. Again, sidebar, there's also a 2016 movie called Population Zero that also uses this, this theory as a premise. I feel like that's popped up on my Amazon. Oh my God, please watch it and then (laughs) do a review. Yeah. Okay. But like at the end of the day, isn't this basically all just like a big hypothetical? Right. Eh. (laughs) I mean, I was going to (laughs) ask. Kind of. You know what I mean? Um, I should also say that there are a couple of qualifiers. If I have violated a weapon law outside of the state, if I murder you with a gun that I have stolen or Mm -hmm. something like that, that like I could, I could be on the hook for that. Or if there was evidence to point to the fact that I had conspired to commit the murder beforehand, like say announcing my plot to murder you on our podcast. Yeah. So, um, so yes. I'm protected now. You are protected. <laughs> uh, that could also be like, uh, she talked about it, but like, this has to be, I'm like, I don't, do I want to get into this? You have to make it look like it was sp- a spontaneous thing. Spur of the moment. Anything that if we get into premeditated murder, that's where this this yeah. can fall away. You but, can't premeditate it till you cross the Idaho state line. Right, exactly. And then <laughs> once I'm in there, I'm like, ding, I'm going to murder Scotty. Um, but Cult argues that all of this doesn't help the murdered person or yeah. like their friends and family. You know, at the end of the day, somebody's still dead. Yeah. I mean, it's Regard- like my, I was just going to say, my dad always says, it's like, you know, it's not good enough to be right. Like you can like be crossing the street and a crosswalk and get hit by a bus and you're right but you're still dead right precisely yeah Yeah. um and nobody's gonna be like at least i know that it was against the like from you know from beyond right (laughs) um as far as we know no one has killed another person in this quote-unquote zone of death so again Mm -hmm. like who really cares right um in 2005 of just a few months after cult published his paper a hunter or a poacher depending on who you talk to uh, a hunter named michael belderane was standing in the Montana section of Yellowstone mm-hmm. when he shot and killed an elk that was just outside park boundaries. Okay. Okay. Also, I believe hunting is not allowed in Yellowstone. I think that's part of why this is. Yeah. Why this next stuff happens. Uh, that makes sense. Beldering removes the head and drags it through the park, <laughs> which is also, I mean, against the law. And, and Beldering, gross as fuck. But, yeah. yeah. And like, oh, I mean, an elk, like what kind of knife did you use? It doesn't matter. Okay. <laughs> Beldering gets brought up on charges in the district of, the, of Wyoming and they, you know, all the way over in Cheyenne. Yeah. But Beldering and his attorneys are like, nah, and they say that it would be unconstitutional for Beldering to be tried in Wyoming for a crime committed in Montana. Yeah. So they now, tried out this argument. They tried out this argument. Now, mental floss, the, art- the mental floss article kind of posits that if the judge were like, you know what? Fuck it. Fuck you. We're trying you in Wyoming, even though you've cited cults theory, like, you know, don't whatever this is. We're, we're going to just 
disregard this. Yeah, fuck off. Congress might have been inspired to resolve the issue. Mm -hmm. Instead, the judge was like, get the fuck out of here with that bullshit, rejecting the quote unquote esoteric notion of cults theory mm-hmm. and orders Beldering to stand trial in Wyoming. Okay. Cult says, quote, he, meaning the judge, didn't say what his interpretation was or why I was wrong. And then the prosecutor conditioned Beldering's plea deal on Beldering not appealing this issue. I was going to say, because I would think mm-hmm. this would be like grounds for appeal, like right away. Yep. Which means the judge and the prosecutor in Beldering's case have now left the door wide open for a higher stakes trial. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because if there wasn't for this plea deal, it would have gotten appealed. Yeah. Okay. So this is where the constitution not being a perfect document really like comes into play. Everybody is kind of operating on this idea of like, that won't ever happen. But that is a hard argument to use in a post-2016, post-Trump world. Right. We have now seen that a lot of stuff that a lot of rational, educated, knowledgeable people were like, that is never going to happen. We have a system of checks and balances. That stuff went ahead and happened. In 2008, Cult published a follow-up article titled Tabloid Constitutionalism, How a Bill Doesn't Become a Law. (laughs) (laughs) He's poor guy is stressed. Like he's stressed about this. He's really trying. Mm -hmm. So he publishes this article where he again tries to blow the whistle on this issue. He got a reply from the U.S. attorney saying it wasn't in his power to change the law. And he also got a response from an intern at the House Judiciary Committee that didn't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, apparently everybody's too busy working on more important stuff than eliminating the zone of death. Yeah. <laughs> Cult- like, like their reelections. R- precisely. Yeah. Cult says, quote, they have more important things to worry about. Of course, they aren't fixing those things either, but I need to be <laughs> realistic here. <laughs> Poor guy. <laughs> He's like, can somebody please? <laughs> There's a zone of death. Um, Since the publication of Cult's article, which, like I mentioned before, is easily found on the internet, more visitors have flocked to that area of Yellowstone. Hopefully, they're just looky-loos like Scotty and I would be. Like, you know, 100%. We would be like, ooh. I I mean, I do want to go visit the zone of death just to, like, I don't know, get a t-shirt or something. Right. Right. (laughs) So hopefully, they're just looky-loos like Scotty and I would be, um, and they are not, like, plotting or planning anything more nefarious. Mm-hmm. And that is the thorny and weird tale of Yellowstone's zone of death. Oh yeah. That's a thinker. I mean, yep. I can see how, if, if you're a lawyer and you discover this, like that's going to keep you up at night. Yeah. And I mean, I think the thing, I think like what cult said earlier is like judge and prosecutors are going to be like, no, get out of here. But the defense is going to be like, uh, uh, the constitution clearly states that the jury must be made from people from the state and the district. And there are no people. So there is no jury. So there is no trial. Well, and the thing is like, depending on how this goes, if someone say gets convicted because a judge and a prosecutor kind of do the same thing. Mm-hmm. But there is no plea deal. So then it gets overturned on appeal. You can't retry that person because of double jeopardy. Mm-hmm. So I mean that's I mean that's why Cosby is off now. Because now yes. it's double jeopardy. So you can't, yes. you can't there's no do-overs. Yeah. And that's the thing, is that like 
you know, again, and I came across some articles, I didn't super look into them, which is why they aren't sourced, but there's articles that are like, um, like there's a Snopes article, I think that's like, no, there isn't a zone of death in Yellowstone. And I'm like, there is though, Mm -hmm. because you can't tell me that if somebody is murdered in that section of Idaho, nobody lives there. You can't build a jury from that place. Right. Well, and the only argument you can say about like, there is no zone of death in Idaho is goes back to that thing of like, well, hasn't happened yet precisely like that doesn't mean shit like that doesn't mean shit and again with bill cosby with like again everything that has happened since you know the middle the middle tens of (laughs) this century has led me to be like oh no we can't because it's all all of it is working on good faith now again like like i said there are a couple of things that you would have to be able to prove that like even just searching this article would be mm-hmm. enough to be like that was premeditated. Right. So there so it would we should make it clear like it wouldn't be easy necessarily to mount this defense. But it's not impossible. But it's not impossible. And the thing is is like let's say that we have friends who listen to this podcast. So the mm-hmm. podcast is on their, you know, history, but then they tell somebody about it and that somebody's like, "Oh, fantastic. I have been wanting to get rid of my, you know, to off my wife or whatever." Road mm-hmm. trip. Yeah. And like, since they, we can't prove that they heard about it because of our podcast or because they, someone read this article yeah. or whatever, you know, proving premeditation isn't necessarily that easy. Yeah. You know, this happened with the Dirk Chauvin trial. I mean, I mm-hmm. think, I don't remember how that ultimately came out, but like, that was a big fight of like, how do you prove he premeditated killing George Floyd? Right. And it, like, I wouldn't have put money on how a jury would go on that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And that's why, again, like, you know, if I come into the park with like a gun and a shovel to bury you, and (laughs) you know, I've like, you know, done things that it's like, she was clearly planning on killing him. But if I strangle you, if I bludgeon you with a rock, if I push you into a river, like, I mean, even with the gun and the shovel, you could say like, well, you know, the gun is because I'm going to go hunting in Idaho later or self-protection or whatever. And the shovel is if I get stuck in the mud and I have to dig myself out. Right. You know, like or people can to, come like, up with excuses. Like yeah, exactly. whatever the fuck, you know. Like yeah. you just can't trust the like, yeah, you just can't trust it. Yeah. And again, I think like, I think this is... <laughs> This is not me being pro or anti-America when I say this, but this country has a little bit of a habit of being like, it hasn't happened yet. And I'm like, we are not old enough as a country (laughs) to be able to say that with any kind of meaning. Right. Exactly. You know, if we were Rome, maybe like if we were England, maybe, (laughs) but like, and again, with the last administration, there was a lot of stuff that we were like, that'll never happen. That'll never happen. And then we watched those things happen one by one by one. Right. Well, and it just goes back to the idea of confirmation bias. Like mm-hmm. you're convincing yourself it'll never happen because it hasn't happened yet. And that's like absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence, you know, like, right. yeah, it hasn't happened yet, but there's, there's all sorts of, you know, we haven't been hit by an asteroid you know, in the last 65 million years that has been an extinction level event could happen tomorrow. Like we don't know, you know, like you just, you can't like, this is just sticking your head in the sand. That's all it is. And especially too, because the solution is so simple. Right. I mean, why, why we can't just like introduce this in Congress, like this should be, this isn't like a state's rights issue or like any of the, like, well, it should be like bipartisan and like not, not a problem. 
That's the interesting thing, though, is that in the Vox article, I think there was some stuff that it was like this actually like because, you know, it's 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 it has been brought up to people and stuff, Mm -hmm. but there is something and now I'm not going to remember exactly what it was, but it had to do with like conservationists and stuff that it was like, uh, 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 you can't change the boundaries that's been designated. You can't do that. But and you- it would give, it would give an end to like conservationists to come in and, and, but I'm like, it doesn't just move it. Just move again, it. <laughs> well, again, that's all like theoretical, like, and like, what is more important? Like, you know, conservationists battles about whatever that's going to be, or right. like, the possibility of someone getting away with murder. Right. But the thing is, is that there's conservationist lobbyists and there, I don't know. I, I don't know that there's a lot of murder lobbyists. who are like i want to be able to murder somebody and have a trial that is like full of my jeer like my peers uh so i don't know yeah it's i mean it's an interesting thing and again the solution is so simple but nobody's doing anything about it i mean like call your congressman or whatever like i guess yeah all of our wyoming idaho and montana listeners I think we do have like two. I, I look on our thing. And hi. Hey guys. Hi guys. Like, we're we're gonna turn this over to you. You guys go <laughs> fix this. <laughs> yeah, my work is done here. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I guess, you know, final note is when are we gonna go to Yellowstone? <laughs> <laughs> as long as we stay out of the Idaho part, I'm fine. Precisely. I'm also not clear that like, and this is getting into this is getting a little bit into like ridiculous stuff, but like I don't know that the boundaries are clearly delineated. So if I'm actually out of Yellowstone, but in Idaho and I shoot you with a gun, but you were still in the Idaho section of Yellowstone, but I'm firmly on Idaho state land. Yeah. Like, is it, I mean, you know, it's not, I mean, it's not hard to have like, be like, stand over there. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. <laughs> like, so like, Again, does that matter? None of this is meant to be an instruction manual. <laughs> yes. We are not responsible for anything yeah ever no that's yeah. bad i had never heard of that before but that yep. I, that seems like the next rabbit hole like i'm done yeah. with the dr death rabbit hole for a while but yeah yeah be done with that one. yeah go check it out it's really interesting and like i said poor brian Colt is like please I mean, somebody just, do something like bake that guy some banana bread or something like, for do real. something for him, you know? yeah he's been trying to take care i mean this was back in 2004 so that kid is probably like in high school by now but you know, he was taking, trying to take care of a new baby and he found this weird loophole in the constitution where you could technically murder somebody in this sliver of yellow stamp. Poor guy, just yeah. poor guy. Brian call. You probably don't listen to this podcast, but if you do, we're with God, you. Yeah. God bless you. We see you. We hear you. We're with you. <laughs> Fucking hell. All right. On that note. thanks for listening everybody uh be sure to rate subscribe review i'm hearing in the podcast world that subscribe is really what helps um of course you know reviews help as well we like gain and lose subscribers in this mysterious way that like Mm -hmm. makes no sense to me Mm because like some days it'll be like 120 subscribers and then some days it'll be 23 and then another day it'll be like 300 (laughs) so i don't know what's going on there but like long story short go subscribe to the podcast. Yeah. Even just like if you're on an iPhone, even if you don't listen to us on Apple podcasts, just fucking subscribe to us. Do us a solid. Do us a Um, solid. Write us a review too. I think the reviews help a lot. Yeah. And we like hearing from you guys. Um, Okay. So do all that stuff. Tune in next week. Mm -hmm. Stay weird. Stay curious. And we'll see you guys soon. Bye. Bye. So listen, friends, we'll 
blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find. Might be true, and that's the weirdest thing.